0: You're listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership.
1: Has the Bible become stale to you? Are there ways of reading the Bible that you kind of scratch your head and you say, well, that didn't sound exactly the way it sounded like the other person who wrote it. John sounds different from Mark and Mark sounds different from Luke, even though there's some similarities between Mark and Luke and Matthew and to John, even if John's different, right? These different questions can uh, come to mind. There's a certain fascination to the biblical text, even while there can also kind of be a humdrumness to the biblical text. Sometimes we stop being surprised by it. How difficult this is, not just for people in their walk with the Lord, but also those whose responsibility is to preach the biblical text, is to take it and read it and unpack it for their people, to edify them, to build them up, to encourage them in their own walk with the Lord. If any of those questions or experiences connect with you, today's guest is right for you. Today's guest is Dr. Bart Brewler. Dr. Brewler is professor of New Testament here at Indiana Wesleyan University. I consider him a friend. He's a person I've learned from. He's a person who loves God, who loves the church, and who loves the Bible. In this episode, we are specifically talking about the Gospel according to Luke. In this episode, you're gonna hear Bart talk about ways to read Luke, some encouragements for ways to read the Bible and to read it well. You're gonna hear some of how Luke has surprised him even over years of studying this gospel. In this episode, I think you're gonna leave encouraged, enriched, and with a few more practical tips and and skills to use in your own Bible study. Thanks so much uh, for tuning in. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy the podcast. We are Wesley
0: and you belong here. My name is Victoria Borum and I am Wesley. I'm Lenny Lucchetti and I am Wesley. My name is Chris and guess what? I am Wesley.
1: Hi, I'm Tina Schappett and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt and I am Wesley.
0: I am Wayne Brown and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr. And I belong here. You belong here, too, because we are Wesley.
1: Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast, Bart. It's great to have you. Glad to be here. Been looking forward to it. So you and I have had a couple of conversations about some of the scholarship that you've been working on through the Gospel of Luke. I know you've been digging into, especially it's, uh, it's rhetoric, right? Especially as the way it's yep. been put together to convince the reader, convince the hearer, those who would, it would come under his teaching. I'd love for you just to talk to us maybe a little bit before we get into that, but how did you become interested in the Gospel of Luke? Well, I always had,
0: uh, I don't think I knew what it was at first, but I, I just felt drawn to the Gospel of Luke because it seemed to be the story of Jesus that made the most sense to me. Uh, when I read Mark or even John, there are things I liked about it, but I always came away feeling like, huh, the the story just didn't flow the way I wanted it to. And, and, and later on, I came to understand uh, a little bit more clearly that there's some good indicators for that, that Luke appears to have taken some of the gospel traditions that existed before he wrote and combined them and recombined them in very purposeful ways. So that sort of intuitive sense that I had that oh this story just kind of flows and makes sense to me later you know as my scholarship developed I was like oh I'm not the first person to feel this way (laughs) and in fact lots of people have kind of observed this and and Luke says as much uh right at the beginning of his gospel he says I sat down to make an orderly account for you right so he's trying to do this uh for us for his readers um so that was kind of an initial just a kind of inkling, you know, that one of those things that you're not even aware that you're really doing it while you're doing it, and later on you have mm-hmm. some hindsight that's a little bit more 2020. Um One of the clinchers, though, was I was I was reading through Luke, um, uh, looking for a possible dissertation topic, and I began to notice this pattern uh, where, uh, again, Luke is, is referring to Mark's gospel in important ways, um, but almost every time Mark noted that something happened privately, Luke omitted it. He took it out almost every time, nine times out of 10. There's one that he leaves and he massages it quite a bit. Um, and that just made me really interested. That's like, why would he, what, what's going on there? Like, that surely can't be accidental. All right. There's got to be some kind of purpose in uh, in erasing or omitting all of these instances where Jesus does something privately with his disciples. And uh, so that was kind of the hook then that that got me into uh,
1: studying Luke now for, oh, these 20-ish years or so. <laughs> now you've said that in a really disarming way, right? Like you said that as a person who's had not just a relationship with the text, but really can hear your faith shining through, right? There's a relationship mm-hmm. with the the one about whom the text is written, right? There's a relationship sure. with the Lord Jesus, and you said this in a really disarming ways. But I, I'm imagining there might be people that hear it, and certainly there are people who could share what you've just said in ways that could be much more threatening, right? Like there's like the, sure. the text has has been manipulated, or the text has been has been written in a, in a way that is is meant to conceal, or is or some something similar mm-hmm. to that. Uh, you know be some some challenge to some people who are listening to say well if if luke read it in mark why didn't he write it the way that mark wrote it i'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about that track down that that wrote a little bit for us why why do you think that that's not threatening right why does that not undermine the message that luke is giving or why does it not maybe it could say undermine the message that mark is is giving sure <laughs> yeah I, uh
0: whether we like it or not uh the Bible is full of a mixture of perspectives. Um, you know, interestingly, we, we, the, the sort of Bible that we have that has come down to us, uh, it, it's, it's very much like a library rather than its own integrated unified book. And Old Testament, and New Testament alike, we get these doubling of stories and perspectives. So in Old Testament, the big examples are first and second Kings, then get retold from a somewhat different perspective in First and Second Chronicles. Um, we get Isaiah's take on the events of Hezekiah's reign in the, book of Hezek- in the book of Isaiah. And then we get a different take on those in the book of Second Kings. And then in the New Testament, we have similar kind of things, in, in particular with the four Gospels, right? So all these different takes. Somehow, in God's wisdom, uh, retelling the same or similar or related events from multiple perspectives seems to be an important part of what it means to be canonical Hmm. uh that's just that's just built into the very structure of the bible that that god has passed down to us in in this kind of way um and so and we we might talk uh, about this a little bit more uh later on too um so there's this sense in which I've, I've studied a little bit of Islam and Hinduism too, sort of along the way, and, and I kind of track this in this type of way. Hinduism values diversity to the nth extreme, uh, multiplication of different deities, of shrines, of, you know, the Hindu uh, scriptural corpus is, is 15 Bibles all stacked up along one, you know, it's just huge, just ginormous. So they value this sort of diversifying fruitfulness of expanding the divine world in all kinds of ways. Um, Islam goes in the opposite direction in a lot of ways, right? For Islam, there's only one God and his prophet is Muhammad, right? It's singularity, it's integrity, it's unification. And Christianity sort of is in a middle space between those two, right? So God is both one, singular, integrated, and three multiple and different at the same kind of time, which of course has been bending people's minds for thousands of years. (laughs) Um, And scripture does that same kind of thing to us, right? It's both unified in some profound sense, but then it's also diverse at the Mm -hmm. same time. And so similarly to the Trinity, right? If, If we collapse everything into just monotheism, we lose something dramatically important. Similarly, if we lose monotheism and just let everything kind of run amok uh, into tritheism or sabellianism or something like that, then we get run into problems too. And so I think that that same sort of posture of struggling to hold on to those two dynamics in the Trinity exists with the Bible as well, right? So there's some kind of profound unity but then we have to hold on to the diversity at the at the same kind of time, um, and that's a constant balancing act, right? I mean, you never sit down and go, "Oh, I'm done now, right? <laughs> I've figured it out. Uh, it's all resolved and, and simplified now." I don't that doesn't seem the journey that God's put us on.
1: A couple of thoughts that come to mind. They're they're not uh, they're not related. But the first one that comes to mind is uh, whenever my wife and I were uh, just starting to get to know each other, and maybe. Uh, our friendship take a little bit more of a, a romantic turn. Uh, there was a flood in the southern tier of New York. Now and we, we ended up doing lots of flood. Uh, relief work together. Now, if I was to tell the story of the flood that happened in 2006 in the southern tier of New York, it would look rather different than the way that one of the motel owners would tell the flood of 2006 when they lost their business. Right? There's there's a, a shared event, but there's certainly different ways of, of telling the story. And the, uh, so I, I think about that, right? Like the the ways that that the uh, the gospel writers tell the story is one that's unique to them, right? They're telling the story. For their own purposes and in their and in their mm-hmm. own ways. Now the gospel writers aren't telling them in such extreme ways as a business devastated uh, account. Uh, uh, the the owner of a business that was devastated mm-hmm. in the midst of a flood would tell it in, this, in the way that sure. you know a man was falling in love with his future wife. Those would be radically different. So what's remarkable then, I would say, is the similarity of the gospels. The other thing that I would I would say to it is that the the twenty first century reader is not the first reader to make these observations. Right, the fact oh, that no, Luke no. is intentionally doing that, right, the one who is so close to the events thinks that, well, of course I'm going to tell this my way. I, of course I know the differences. Isn't something that undermines his telling of the text at all, right? We might hear it, and we could certainly have it be told to us in a way that that's really threatening, like the the text is really undermined. But but Luke isn't doing that, right? Luke is is using Mark. He's intentionally retelling the story for his own purposes, not in a way that undermines Mark, but in a, really in a way that that honors it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I would. I I often push back on the, uh, you know, I often get this story of, well, if uh, there's an accident and an intersection, then the person standing on the, you know, the northeast corner is going to give you a different perspective than the person standing on the southeast corner, you know, or something like that. I usually push back a little bit against that uh, metaphor, just because what we have with the Gospels does not appear to be four sets of different eyewitnesses. So probably, uh, you know, all of these historical decisions always come with an asterisk, right? I mean, I'm always happy to get to heaven and find out, oh, that wasn't in fact the case. But, you know, as best as I can tell, Luke was not an eyewitness to the events of Jesus's life. He's entirely relying on sources, both written and oral, you know, going on before him. Um, So if we think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as as standing on four different corners, all watching the same event of Jesus's life occurring, that's not it's not really the best fit for what we've probably got where matthew and luke appear to be using mark in significant ways and then john is like in another county somewhere right (laughs) he's not he's not even watching that intersection he's staring up at the sunset in the other direction (laughs) yeah
1: so yeah literally in in a different area yes no precisely that's right (laughs) Yeah, there's there's like a portrait element to it, right? There's a there's oh, a, absolutely, yeah, uh, yeah. They're all leaving their own kind of sign, signature on the on the story and telling mm-hmm. the, the gospel in a way that's meant to convince. So especially for for Luke, like it, it's it's written to Theophilus, right? In a way that sure that he would be he would be convinced. Now I remember uh, hearing one of your your papers as as you were presenting to some of us here at the at the university on the commentary that you're writing on the Gospel of Luke. I'd love for you just to tell us a little bit about what's the angle that you're coming at the Gospel of Luke to analyze the text and to study what exactly is going on there.
0: Yeah, it has a couple of different dimensions to it. Um, First of all, uh, you know, in the past, well, I guess I'd put a cap on 50 years, maybe something like in the past 50 years, really all of these new... Uh, approaches and insights and helpful ways of reading scripture really just exploded on the scene. Uh, you know, about 50 years ago, there was kind of one way of doing it. Uh, and, and in that scope of time since then, we've had kind of literary approaches, right? Looking at the Bible as, as literature, we've had social scientific approaches, right? How, how do we understand society and cultural principles, things like honor and shame in scripture? Um, We've had other approaches that have dealt with the sources very closely. I mean, so all these things have really kind of exploded in the past 50 years. So uh, that's one dimension of the commentary series that I'm working on is it intends to put all of these different pieces into dialogue with one another and see how they are both mutually supporting, right? At some points there's these fascinating conjunctions where they all come together. And then when they just cast a different light on different things and you're like, oh, well, there's that over there and there's that over there and they're just very different uh, kind of pieces. So that's, that's one point of it is that it, it looks at kind of the literary approach. It looks at intertextual approaches. So how is Luke using other texts and how does it relate to other elements of the world around him it looks at social scientific approaches and then also ideology, right? How does how structures and assumptions about the world built into the text uh, in, in ways that we should observe. So that, that's one dimension of it. Uh, another a distinctive piece of it is built on the notion that we tend to operate in sort of cognitive lanes, if you will. Uh, I often use the example, you might have heard me <laughs> do it. Um, if I sing, old MacDonald has a farm, and then I ask you, what color is Old MacDonald's barn? Do you know what color it is? Oh,
1: it's red, of course.
0: It's red, of course. We all know that it's red. Does the song say anything about his barn being red? No, does it doesn't know? say a word about that. And and what is Old MacDonald wearing on his head, by the way? A oh, straw hat. Oh, yeah, everybody knows that. And so we have this sort of conceptual domain of mm. what it, the ideal farm and farmer looks like. Mm. And as soon as I sing that little tune, that whole thing just goes and it's right there in front of us. And it's available to us to draw all these pieces from and relate them together in interesting and creative ways. Right. And we do that with all kinds of things. Right. I mean, that's just an example uh, of, of, you know, we could do military imagery or we could do sports imagery. and, And we suddenly have this conceptual cluster of things that hold on to each other. And again, God seems to have wired the human brain this way, right? This is how we, this is how we think about things and it's how we do things creatively. Um, another classic example is the, the saying, that surgeon is a butcher. When I say that, we all know that the surgeon doesn't have a part-time job in a meat market, right? But we take these two different domains like a medical surgical domain and a butchery domain, and we can combine them together in these interesting and creative ways. So another part of the commentary is looking at how that works uh, in Luke's gospel in particular. Um, In the ancient world, there seemed to be uh, some major and then some minor uh, sort of modes of religious discourse. So for instance, uh, priestly modes of discourse, things that talk about temples, priests, sacrifices, cleansing, holy spaces and time. I mean, all these things, again, are kind of available in a cluster. And then we have another cluster that's about apocalyptic things, right? Usually involves military imagery. It's about the end of the world. They're cataclysmic events. They deal with sort of the whole of creation. I mean, again, we've got a whole sort of cluster of things around that. What we see and what I think is one of the ways the New Testament continues to have the power that it does is that these domains tend to get blended and mixed in really creative and interesting ways in the New Testament and across the New Testament. Um, And so the commentary is really trying to take a look at that as well. What are these, what religious discourses is this drawing on that would have made sense to the people around them? And then how are they blending and combining them in these ways that are both make sense to us, but also make us go, huh, I never thought of that that way before. Um, a, an instance that I was just working on is, why should baptism have anything to do with repentance? John the Baptist comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance. That's, that's the consistent testimony across all the Gospels. What, what does baptism have to do with repentance? Well, if you'd start to push beneath that a little bit, you begin to see, Um, that repentance has started to replace in certain ways uh, people's access to the sacrificial system, right? So there's this little connection where, okay, we need a way to deal with sin. Not everybody has equal access to the temple and sacrifices and whatnot. So repentance becomes a way to deal with sin. Well, baptism is a priestly way of dealing with sin and impurity. And so at this point, they sort of, they can connect to one another and then you know all kinds of creative things happen out of that uh connection between those two so that's another kind of piece of the commentary is looking at how those religious discourses and that kind of kind of clusters work and uh, inform one another
1: so this is i i sent uh, bart some questions before i started uh this episode just to to chat a little bit so I'm, I'm springing one on you here that that maybe maybe will reveal uh, certainly will reveal my ignorance but um uh, what, what came to mind is then how how luke tells the story of jesus's warning of the destruction of jerusalem and he's uh jesus in luke tells it with armies are surrounding the city right when you see this and so you mentioned military imagery and it seems like that military imagery is put into other apocalyptic imagery yeah. of uh, sun and moon and stars and things. It, would, would that be one of the things that Luke does to tell the story in his own way and, and maybe either fleshing out one of these domains of literature or putting, mm-hmm. you know, two metaphors together. I'd love to hear you chat about that, that Luke 21 passage a little bit if possible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Luke, uh, Luke is both. Uh, it's really fascinating to me uh, as I, look at it closely, because Luke, Luke is both very conservative preserver of tradition, right? Um, when when scholars want to go to get a clearer idea of what were the exact words that Jesus said, and there's something that Luke and Matthew and Luke and Mark have preserved together, they'll often go with Luke, because Luke seems to preserve that wording much more conservatively. Um, But then Luke also pretty radically transforms other things in in rather dramatic ways. Um, One of the more famous ones is uh, this episode that a lot of us know from the beginning of Luke where Jesus goes into a synagogue and sits down and reads this kind of uh, climactic passage from Isaiah about his mission. Well, he's totally moved that from like five chapters later in Mark's gospel and pulled it out of its order and put it here and added that Isaiah citation, which isn't in Mark's version at all. So it's this really interesting mixture of the two kinds of pieces of of, of things that are um, combined together there. Um, One of the probably interesting things uh, about, um, so you were talking about the destruction of the temple, which I think um, is that saying at the end of chapter
1: 19. Uh, I, I was thinking of uh, Luke, Luke 21, uh, Luke oh, 21. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know that it's desolation is near. Oh, right, right. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, so this is one
0: um, it's in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, they've all preserved um, parts of this. Um, probably one of the most interesting things uh, about this to me is that this, again, this is a place where Luke has preserved both the order and the wording in large part, pretty you know closely to its original. right When you line this up next to Mark and Luke you put them right next to each other, you're like, oh yeah, same word, same word. you know every once in a while Luke will, you know he'll tweak a point or something like that. And it's also important to know in terms of you know we were talking about reliability earlier. Um, if we go back and look at ancient rhetorical handbooks, this is actually how they taught people how to write. So the, the mode was, one of the primary modes was, here's a famous speech from Thucydides, right? We have this, this fantastic speech. Your job as the student is to take it and rewrite it. And so, of course, to rewrite it well, you're not just going to copy it down word for word, right? You might expand at a point or, you know, decrease a certain point. You might insert you might change it from third person to second person you know so they were taught to do these kind of interesting variations out of respect for you know this classic example that they have before them and so we see luke doing some of those kinds of things just little variations or shifting a word around here or, you know kind of doing those minor uh, little changes but one thing that Luke very distinctively adds um, to this discourse in chapter 21 is the is the last thing that Jesus says, which is entirely absent in the similar accounts in Mark and Matthew. So you get all of this, you know, the, the temple's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. There's going to be upheaval everywhere. It's going to be disastrous. You know, all these kind of things. And then in 21, 28, Jesus right at the end of this discussion says, now, when these things begin to take place. Stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So we might read through all of this and go, oh, my goodness, this is going to be terrible. I mean, this is the worst thing ever. But Jesus actually gives us a really positive spin (laughs) in Luke's gospel because he says when all this awful stuff happens, stand up, get ready because that's when your redemption is going to happen right on the heels of this kind of thing. Uh, And and so it turns out to be this really positive thing kind of at at the very end. And again, that's a little line that Luke adds, you know, so he's both preserved what's there pretty faithfully and then given his own little twist on it at the Mm -hmm. end um, by kind of reminding the audience, this is not cause for despair. This is cause for rejoicing and hope because these events mean that things are coming even closer than they were before. Hmm. Uh,
1: So you you talked about putting together, um, you know, other spheres that maybe wouldn't necessarily be combined. And, you know i'm listening to you unpack the text show how you've engaged with the text and clearly uh you've had training and you've you've worked with the training right you've practiced it and what came to mind for me is that scene from taken when liam neeson talks about having developed a very particular set of skills Uh, so the the listener who's like okay thank you dr bruler you know obviously you have some skills to have worked with the text to have brought this about um you know and people could go and one of your uh one of your own professors if i recall correctly dr uh, vernon robbins uh, has got a great text that that was given to me somewhere along the lines and that i did my best to learn from it and it's it's a really helpful text to engage scripture i had not certainly commit it to to listeners i think it's called the the tapestry of early christian discourse yeah uh, by vernon robbins so you can learn some of the particular skills that dr Bruller has has put on display here for us uh through that book but there's other people who are who are just right there are in the midst of life and they go to the text time and time again to, to be with Jesus, right? to, to read yeah. the text. Maybe they do this in family devotion time. Maybe they're a pastor that's studying the text for uh, to, to teach and to edify their con- congregation. Uh, I would love for you to just talk to this person. Right? Talk to the preacher, talk to the reader who's familiar with Luke, but they don't have this particular set of skills that you have. Sure. They come to you and they say, Bart, help me to go deeper how can I go deeper in my reading of the Bible in particular with this conversation in mind, how can I go deeper in my reading of Luke? What advice would you give to them?
0: Yeah. You know, I think people usually don't admit this uh, straight up and I totally understand. I wouldn't have admitted it either at a certain point, but I think a lot of people uh, from lay people in the pews to preachers in the pulpits, um, read biblical narratives and Old Testament and New Testament and come away with a little bit of a sense of letdown. Mm. Um, the, you know they, they pale in comparison on a couple of fronts dramatically, right? They tend to have little to no psychological explanation of anything. And that's just a standard piece of contemporary novel writing, biography, history it is to explore the mindsets and decision-making processes of the key players and characters in the game. Bible rarely does that. Uh, and so we come sort of with this, this inbred tendency to want to find that in our narratives, right? And yet the Bible disappoints us at every turn almost. <laughs> um, So, so there's that dimension. Then there's also the fact that um, scripture was largely written in a world that we would call a high context society where the vast majority of people shared in long sections of tradition, shared a lot of understanding with one another, Um, you know, culture, there, there wasn't a lot of pluralism. There wasn't a lot of intercultural contact. So when I'm talking to you You and I have probably grown up in the same village for 40 years together. We know all the same people. We've experienced most, if not all, of the same kinds of things. And so literature is written in this kind of context where you just don't have to download all that information. You can assume that your reader knows 80% of the things that you know. And we, again, don't experience writing novels, history, biography like that. We want all of the details, all behind the picture unpacked for us. That's what makes good, interesting, creative writing, right? So for the person who often, uh, I want to give people permission to have that initial experience of, oh, huh, that's not very interesting, really. Or the experience of, well, what was Peter thinking? And what was happening over there? Why were there those things and who were those people and what were they doing? And, you know, there's there's all these kind of questions about what's going on behind the passage of scripture that are interesting and they can be helpful at times, um, but they can also be really distracting. Right. They, they take our eyes off of the actual scripture and put it onto things that are happening all in the background, because, again, we're pretty attuned to being accustomed to that when we read novels, biographies of any kind. So it's fine. If you feel that way, you're okay. It just means you live in the present (laughs) and that's perfectly all right. That's right. You live right now. You didn't live 3000 years ago. You're fine. Okay. Um, So don't shy away from that though. Just acknowledge it and say, you know, I'd really love to know what Jesus was thinking about this, but the text has decided that that is not important for me to know. Um, So just go ahead and ask it and then let, let it go over there. Um, And then that gives you permission to come back around to actually look at what is in the text of Scripture. So don't be afraid to ask those questions that are off on the side, but then let them go and say, okay, well, what is actually here um, that's important that I can pay attention to and that I can look at rather than being distracted by things that are not there, but that I might like to know. So go ahead and make that movement, right? That, that would be one step. Uh, just make that movement, go behind the text and then walk right back around and sit right down in front of it again um, and, and just uh, start looking at it. Uh, another thing that's often, I think a little disappointing uh, to readers today is that they find the narratives of the Bible to be really episodic. Um, meaning that, you know, Jesus, Mark is the worst at this, right? Jesus goes here and does this, then he goes here and does this. And he goes here and does this. And it he goes here and does this. And you're kind of like, right, this is like the worst Peanuts cartoon ever, right? Uh, you know, it's just these one little frames of, of things of each time that Jesus is doing something. Um, they really do connect together in a lot of cases, though. And those connections, again, aren't super obvious and they often are not tagged in the text as like, hey, this is connected to this because of X, Y, and Z. That's again, just not how they wrote in the in the ancient world. So even though you might be a little sort of uh, disjointed by the episodic nature of it, go back and say, okay, what's happening here and here and here and here that begins to make sense of what's flowing in the story. Um, A good example is in Luke, uh, across Luke five and six. There's, and it's not the main point of the story, uh, of each of story individually, but it it kind of builds up where there's this this gradually increasing, increasing, increasing conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes. And that seems to be one of the reasons why this string of what might seem to be unrelated stories has been put together. So we get more and more and more and more and more conflict to the point where they decide they need to do something about Jesus. And it's at that point that Jesus chooses the 12 and gives the Sermon on the Plain, right? It's it's almost like the stage has been set for this conflict, and now Luke is going to move on and tell us more about Jesus' own teachings. So those those are two things. Always make sure that you're coming back to the text that's right in front of you and reading it closely and well when Luke does give us details are usually purposeful. Um, And then also sort of seeing the connections between stories um, that takes a little more time often for it to just percolate a a little bit. Um, I I encourage people to move away from what sometimes is the unfortunate habit of devotional readings of scripture where, you know, we get one verse Mm. and then a little chat about it, you know. So uh, even though the stories are kind of chunked off the way that they are, read them together. Uh, read a chunk read a couple of chapters together and sort of get an idea about the flow and that often kind of reveals then what you should be paying attention to in each of the individual stories and brings that out uh, even more clearly
1: so you've had this this relationship with luke for for quite some time engaging the text growing in your skills as you've as you've been reading it growing in uh, in your ability to read the text well in this last kind of set Study of Luke. I'd love for you to share with us what's something that surprised you. So you've been studying this text for a long time, and yet it still surprises you with something in the last uh, in the last go around. What's something that surprised you in your most recent study of Luke?
0: Uh,
1: yeah. Let's see. Uh, you
0: know, all kinds of things <laughs> come to mind. Um, uh, I'll, I'll I'll give you this one. This is one that I was working on just uh, uh, maybe a month or two ago. Um, so there's this there's this scene in Luke 11, uh, and again it's it's in a couple of the gospels in different ways, um, where Jesus is confronted by some Pharisees after he's just healed someone, and they say, you know what, the only way that you can do this is because you're actually in league with Satan. You know, you're cooperating with Beelzebul, and that's how you can do this. Um, and Jesus's response is. Is kind of interesting as Jesus is is wont to do at times. <laughs> um, you know, first of all, uh he answers their challenge with a question, right? Well, if I'm cooperating with Satan, then who are your exorcists cooperating with? Right? And he throws that back at them, uh, which is which is a pretty clever and very Jesus-y thing to do <laughs> in a lot of ways, but not one that we associate with a nice, friendly, polite jesus very much right so he doesn't actually directly refute what they've said he just says you know what you what you've just said is baseless right because why should you not trust my exorcisms when you have people who perform exorcisms and you're not going around and attacking them this just doesn't make any sense and then he kind of raises the stakes uh and, and he says you know but if i cast out demons by the finger of god then the kingdom of God has arrived upon you, right? And so it kind of raises the stakes on them. Again, doesn't directly, you know, refute their position, but he says, think about it. If what I'm doing is by God's power and you miss it, then Mm. you will have missed it. And so he makes that very interesting kind of statement uh, to them. And and then he does something that I think, you know, uh, again, we... This this is a really surprising piece to me. Um, He talks about this unclean spirit that gets driven out uh, of of somebody, goes around, wanders around, finds some even nastier spirits, and eventually comes back and, and, you know, comes home to roost again where it originally was. Um, And I I think Luke has, this is one of these places where Luke has taken some material from Mark and retooled it in, in some ways. Uh, there's this image of uh, the strong man who's all safe up in his house until someone stronger comes along and, you know, gets rid of them. And we usually understand that as Satan is kind of the strong man and Jesus is the stronger one who comes along and boots Satan out. And I think Luke has shifted that on us. And when I first read this, I was like, really, is that really what's going on here? And it just, it just shocked me that he's really portraying this as the failures of the other Jewish exorcists that are operating around him at his time. They are the strong man in the house, and they get their behinds whooped by Satan when he comes back with seven stronger demons than before and reinvades this person as a house, right? So Luke has taken this story... Mm -hmm. And probably reframed it to be more of a critique by Jesus on other Jewish exorcists operating during his time, which then only reinforces the claim: if I'm doing this by the finger of God, and it's superior to all these other sort of failed efforts, then the kingdom of God has arrived upon you. Uh, and that was that was one that I had never read it that way until I got sort of closer into you know, analyzing it. And I was like, wow, that is really different than what I originally thought. That's hmm. fascinating.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. What, you know, what kind of what I'm wondering is this, I remember, I remember hearing you talk about this before, how the, the text is structured in a way to catch its readers, catch its okay. listeners by surprise. Mm-hmm. And and so what I'm, what I, I kind of piece together is, we're conditioned to read the text in a way, and it's not bad. It's just what happens because we've read oh, yeah. it lots. We've heard it preached. You know, mm-hmm. I hope we're conditioned by the text. Like to think of it like that, I hope <laughs> the Bible has formed me, right? I hope yes, right, Bible right. But the the one of the unintended consequences of that is that I can have a familiarity with the text that maybe is not as rich or as deep as it, as it needs to be, right? I've been conditioned by the sure. text and have been conditioned to the text, both for good and and for ill. And here you've said, well, there's something that caught you by surprise as you were kind of open back up to what the text is actually saying and reading it closely, reading it slowly. And uh, one of the things that you said b- before in a previous conversation that we had is that the Luke itself is structured to surprise its listener in the Mm -hmm. in the way it's being told so so maybe that critique of jesus would have would have kind of caught the listeners by surprise they might have heard that account they may have heard that teaching of jesus but now it's being told in a way that's like oh you know brand new meaning It's faithful to what jesus has done faithful to what how he's lived faithful to what he taught but in presented in a way that caught them by surprise Mm -hmm. and that made the story of jesus even richer even deeper and whenever i think about that being some of the impetus of a person like luke uh writing this gospel right when there's others around there's other accounts around mark is there there's other sources that he's writing this with a purpose to keep uh the ever fresh story fresh right to be faithful to a story it's already fresh he doesn't need to spice it up he doesn't need to he's not he's not adding sensational things to it but he's telling it in a way that it's its implications are never ceasing to surprise those who would encounter the story of jesus
0: yeah yeah, and I think, you know, a great example of this uh, are parables. Mm. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly here of the preachers who might be listening to the podcast. We we usually have this notion of parables, uh, that Jesus told parables on purpose in order to illustrate things and make them clearer for his listeners. But if you go look at a lot of the parables, most of the time after Jesus tells a parable, people come away going, what? Mm what? Huh? You know, and the disciples come to Jesus and they're like, could you explain (laughs) to us what? I mean, so if the purpose of parables was to explain things and make illustrations that would make points clearer, then Jesus has horribly failed (laughs) at doing that. He's picked the wrong thing to do. But in fact, I think parables and, you know, then again, significant other parts of scripture at the same time, are trying to put something dramatic about the kingdom of God into some kind of word picture for us that ought to be relatively shocking and surprising. And there's something about that. It's, I don't know that that it's the regular di- diet of preaching, right? There's all kinds of purposes and um, and reasons to preach, but that's, that's one of them uh, that I don't think we think of parables and we don't think of preaching, in fact in that kind of way that what I really want to do when I preach is make people go, what did he actually say that? I mean, that's not what we think of, but it is in fact what Jesus comes along and does and what Luke then comes along and does to us as well. Uh, it, it, you know, multiple points uh, along the way is kind of give us that surprise or shock or that tidbit to chew on for the next couple of weeks until we try to eventually make some kind of sense out of it.
1: So a, a couple of things I hope our listeners have just heard. Uh, you give them permission to do, uh, Bart. One was uh, confuse your your hearers from the pulpit, right? That's okay. Yep, that's right. okay. Have the have them go. What what was what was that about? Maybe not for too many weeks in a row. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. That's right. Two, right? <laughs> Jesus like, have, wasn't always doing that. <laughs> have some tension there, but you've also given them permission to read the text in a way that if they if something catches them by surprise. That that's a good thing right to, to, to go back allow it allow it to surprise you and there's the the flip side of that permission is also the challenge to be humble when we read the text again right mm-hmm. be humble when we read the text that that we haven't figured it out it's like you said it, you know what it's okay to read it and be disappointed that's that's kind of going to happen because of our, our historical situatedness but with some humility and effort there's a there's a way to read it in a way that it catches us by surprise. And that there's there's elements to it that um, uh, that surprise us and that drive us back to the text uh, again. So thanks for giving us those permissions and yeah. uh, those those encouragements and and uh, you know kind chastenings as well. Maybe I'd say. <laughs> you bet.
0: You bet.
1: Uh, I'm going to ask you one final question here. Uh, so we mentioned uh, Dr. Vernon Robbins' uh, book, *The Tapestry of Early Christian Discourse*. Is there another commentary that might be especially useful for for Bible teachers, maybe Sunday school teachers, or or people who are working with adults, or maybe preachers mm-hmm. as they're working to work with their uh, work with the text and sermons? Is there a commentary or an author that you would suggest they check out?
0: yeah a, a couple uh, couple ones that uh, that come to mind uh one is uh, just about anything by Joel Green mm. is is pretty good stuff um he's got a he's got a good commentary uh, on Luke that's um, uh, you know very reader friendly uh in a lot of ways and uh he he actually states in the acknowledgement that he wrote this commentary while he was doing like a two year Sunday school class on Luke at the same time you know and and so it's kind of this you know co-interrelating of his commentary work and his Sunday school class in his church um mm. uh so yeah so that's a that's a really nice commentary if somebody wants to go look at that a uh, Slightly different uh, form or flavor uh, is a book called The Hospitality of God by Brendan Byrne, um, which is, it, it might even in the subtitle say it's a commentary, but it, it's more of kind of a, a running exploration through the Gospel of Luke on this notion of God welcoming us back home, right? This, this idea of hospitality. Um, so it does kind of follow through the book of Luke in the way that a commentary does, but it's not a sort of verse by verse by verse type Mm. of thing. It's much more of a thematic uh, look at at the gospel of Luke. So uh, those are two, um, uh, I think, very handy, helpful, insightful theological resources about reading Luke's gospel.
1: When might we see uh, your work uh, hit the the Uh, online shelves? Lord willing 2023. All right. Yes. Well, that that'll give us something to pull us through the rest of twenty twenty. Okay. <laughs> yeah, me too. Hopefully, we will anticipate, <laughs> and uh, hopefully um, that'll also give us a great reason to, to connect. Hopefully, it won't take uh, three years to reconnect. But right, uh, to have you back? We can the do watch. something else in the meantime. <laughs> Joining us today has been Dr. Bart Bruller. Uh, Dr. Brewler is Professor of New Testament here at Indiana Wesleyan University National Global. Uh, he's a friend. I've sat on committees with Bart, learned from him, appreciate his uh, missional demeanor and the way that he engages in our community as well. So, Bart, thanks so much for taking the time to to talk to to us about Luke. You're welcome.
0: It's been my pleasure.
1: Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. It's always great to have you give me permission and uh, a great excuse to have conversations like this. So thank you for making the Western Seminary Seminary Podcast possible. Uh, The podcast does exist to introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry. I hope that the Gospel of Luke uh, will become one of those resources if it isn't already in your own ministry and devotional and life committed to our Lord. Thank you, uh, Cam, as well, for your production work. appreciate your Uh, being such a great teammate on the Wesley Seminary podcast. So thanks, Bart, Thanks, Cam. Thanks, listeners. Appreciate you all tuning in and trust you all to have a great day.
0: Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.